today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We want to talk about that and uh, the USMCA deal, or NAFTA 2.0, as some are calling it, um, a- after a, uh, a Liberal M- MP told uh, the newly installed Mexican foreign minister that uh, his country threw Canada under the bus during uh, negotiations. We're going to talk about that and start, of course, with the Jody Wilson-Raybould story. Joining me now to talk about all of this, Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. What are your thoughts on what we saw yesterday? I have to start with this, and then we'll go to the trade yes, stuff. Yes, of course. Um, I, I watched it from the very beginning to the very end. Partly, to be honest, I'm on sabbatical, so I'm not teaching. I'm not skipping my class. Um, partly because, I mean, it's just such riveting um, um, testimony. And I can tell you, I mean, I'm, I, I turned 66 this year, and... Um, I have never in my lifetime, and I've followed politics since since my 20s, both American and Canadian, very closely. I cannot remember a situation as unique and riveting as as what we saw uh, yesterday afternoon at the Justice Committee. Uh, and as I've told you, I've lived in Ottawa all my life, and you know, the the business of Ottawa, as I like to tell people who are not from here, the business of Ottawa is politics and government. That's all we do. You know, even though, you know, uh, there's some of us in the private sector or we're in, you know, universities, my joke is even the people who aren't in the government, well, we're selling to the government or we're educating the children who are in the government mm-hmm. and so forth. And it was truly, truly extraordinary. And certainly all the people I've talked to have said the same thing. I it thought it would just, be a much watered-down version of what she did. I thought perhaps they had come to some sort of an agreement and this would all be wrapped up with a nice big bow. Uh, are you surprised that Justin Trudeau gave her permission to do what, what she did, or <laughs> did he have a choice? Um, you know, it's funny. My sentiments were exactly the same. I thought before she started that she was going to speak truth to power, but I thought she was going to put a bit of sugar on it, a bit of sugar coating. Not not misrepresent at all, because I never never thought she would do that. She's obviously an unbelievable straight shooter. But I didn't think she would go so straight out and just put it so flat out there. And um, and it did it did catch me off guard. I did not. I mean, I knew she was going to lay it out there, and I think everyone knew that. But I I certainly didn't expect her to be so direct, so blunt. And and so remarkably relentless in documenting it over and over and over. I don't think she had the blessing of Mr. Trudeau. I don't think that Mr. Trudeau could have done anything. She's obviously a very strong-willed and a very independent person with a very very strong sense of uh, of uh, ethical integrity. Um, and um, I mean, I don't think it'll to be blunt. I don't think it'll carry you very far in politics because the nature of politics is is that you can't speak truth to power too much. Because if you do, you get fired, as happened to her. But but nonetheless, um, it was truly uh, remarkable to have somebody essentially take back the curtain. I mean, a lot of people outside of Ottawa. I mean, you know, say, what what are those people, what are they doing in Ottawa? How do the politicians interact with the public servants, you know, at the senior level? Well, last night, last afternoon, late last night, what we saw was, I think, the first time that anybody has ever taken the curtain back Mm. to see what goes on behind the scenes, you know, or to use that famous phrase of Bismarck, you know, those who don't like politics or sausage, don't watch it being made. Mm. Well, last night we saw politics in the raw 
and it was being explained to us how it's being made, and it's not pretty. Some of it is pretty dirty and pretty ugly and pretty smelly. What about the Prime Minister's response? Uh, He flatly denies and disagrees with everything that she said. Uh, Can this turn into a he or is this become a he said, she said? And if he takes that stance... Does he not have to prove it by allowing those other 11 people to, to, to do the same thing she did? Well, this is the risk, I think, and I'm just doing this purely as, you know, sort of the the, the armchair quarterback that I'm playing, the analyst, if you will, uh, but I think this is the risk he is taking um, in in um, in uh, challenging her, denying what she said, or at least denying her interpretation, because uh, it's already led to the opposition members, starting with Lisa Raitt, uh, as well as the leading uh, NDP member of the committee, Mr. Rankin, calling for the government to allow the other, the remaining uh, ten people, eleven, eleven, eleven people she identified, to now appear before the committee, starting, of course, with Mr. Butts, and uh, and this is, you know, shades. And I, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but I remember in my twenties, long time ago, coming home every day. And sitting down with my mother in the living room and watching CBS News, watching the Watergate hearings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was just day after day, there were new revelations, new witnesses came forward, and yet more information just gushed out. And, and it kept the story going, of course, and it got worse and worse. And I, and I think that this is what they must be really worried about right now is, okay, there's already been a lot of damage. But if they have another 10 witnesses coming out, you know, you can't, in these raw, real-time situations like this, even if they're, quote, the witnesses on your side, sympathetic to you, you can't script these things to the nth degree. You can just say, you know, I want you to, (laughs) you know, don't embarrass us. But sometimes things get blurted out. You're under oath. And sometimes just in the, the glare of the moment, the heat, the pressure of the moment, you say things that become very revealing. And so I think the risk, first off, she has nothing to lose in the sense she said, here's my story. I've got endless documentation of this, text messages, email messages, written briefing notes. I've got it all. It's all backed up. So she just has to, you know, it's easy to tell the truth in the sense you don't have to keep your story straight. You just keep saying the same thing over and over. The, the, when you are telling something that may be not exactly accurate, you have to really have a, 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 a perfect memory to remember exactly what it is you said that deviated from what it is that actually happened. And it's a lot more difficult than people realize. And so I think the risk is lies on the government side. And as more witnesses come forward and, and more of a, a, even a fuller story is revealed, I think there'll be even greater sympathy uh, for her if that's even possible. So is this turning into a debate over interpretation, the definition of pressure? Uh, no, this is the way it's done all the time. What's the problem here? Uh, is that what this is going to end up being? I think the, um, no, that's an excellent question. Uh, I, I mean, I think the narrative is emerging already. Uh, it's already out there. I shouldn't say it's emerging. It's out there, and it's going to become more prominent that this is a government that is determined to make sure that its base, every government has a base, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, that its base in Quebec will be looked after at all costs. 
And that's going to, some people say, hey, that's business, that's politics as usual. And there's going to be others who are going to be extremely angry about that because this is confirming what they thought all along. And obviously I'm referring especially to people in Western Canada who say, look at that, you know, the, the, mm. you know Quebec gets what it wants no matter what. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going down like 10 pins in a bowling alley because of the economy and the oil and gas, and there's, there's nobody caring about us in Ottawa. And so I think that, that part of the narrative is, is already there, the sort of the Quebec versus uh, Western Canada. But the, the, the second issue, the second narrative, if you will, is this whole business about, you know, truth in government, ethics in government, scrupulous behavior in government. Because Mr. Trudeau campaigned on that, that I'm going to do government differently. I'm not going to be like those old sleazy politicians from the past. And I'm going to really do it completely differently. And that's completely undermined his ability, which I'm sure he was going to run on in the fall election. You know, we're here because we're better. We're going to do better things for women and, and indigenous people and minorities and labor. And, I mean, that whole entire campaign strategy is now, mm. I think, in tatters because this is the second emerge, uh, narrative emerging that that whole thing was not true. It was, a, it was just a political posturing, uh, a campaign sl- set of campaign slogans rather than the real deal. Uh, over and above what's going on with with uh, uh, Justin and Jody, where's SNC on all of this? Will the new attorney general give them what the old one wouldn't? If this hadn't blown up, meaning it become you know the, the scandal, the cause celebra that it has become, uh, I think that that was a foregone conclusion. I think now, and I mean now today, to right now today, that Lavalin has become so radioactive, and I use the term very carefully, yeah. although, you know, colorfully, it has become so radioactive that the Minister of Justice, his hands are so completely tied that, first off, it'll be very damaging for himself personally and his own reputation because he'll be just slammed if he did grant our mediation agreement. And um, secondly, the government is going to be slammed. And so they're in this situation they can't really go forward they can't go backward and uh, so everything is on hold right now in Ottawa vis-a-vis Lavalin Lavalin's already said they're proceeding uh, on the basis that it will go to trial um, I mean if, if I, I do see a way out so to speak and that's to embed this and make it part of the campaign uh, I'm talking over the summer and the fall there is an election we know that it's October I think the 18th legislated by an act of Parliament and uh, it's going to need some kind of a mandate by one of the whoever wins the next government to to get out of this mess. They've already proposed the government. The liberal government has already proposed amending the integrity legislation, integrity act legislation, to permit um, a more uh, readily uh, ready use, uh, easily used. Uh, um, uh, my English is very bad here. <laughs> Sorry. To allow governments to apply remediation agreements more readily. And uh, because I think that there is agreement that they're not a bad thing. The Americans are doing it. The British are doing it. The question is, and this is why I think it's going to have to become part of the election campaign so that government who is elected receives a mandate, is going to have to spell out in more fulsome detail 
well, what does that mean? Is this just a slap on the wrist so you can go and, and cheat and lie and uh, bribe all over the world, and then you, you know, get a slap on the wrist and away you go? Or is there going to be a substitute mechanism that is truly a penalty? In other words, we're going to hit you with a really mega fine, a, walk- a whacking great fine. And, uh, and so I think that uh, I just can't see them now granting a, uh, a remediation agreement. But, Scott, remember, the courts move very, very slowly. We all know that. They're not going to be coming to trial before the, ne- the election in October, which is six months away. Mm-hmm. So that means that the incoming government, whoever that is, liberal or conservative, and I assume it's one of the two, because the NDP have never held power at the federal level, uh, I, I, that will give that incoming government um, uh, a mandate to then deal with Lavalin one way or the other, whether it is in a remediation agreement or no way, not at all, make them go to trial. So I think that's the resolution. The resolution will come that way from through the election. Will that save SNC or is it too late for them here? I don't. I, um, I, I've been talking about this with uh, friends and colleagues and business people and so forth. I'm not of that school that says, oh, my goodness, doom and gloom, Lavalin's about to fail. I mean, I looked at the bankruptcy statistics. In Canada, we only have one bankruptcy act at the federal level, passed by the federal parliament, unlike the states where they have them at both the federal and the state level. And uh, the stats are very clear. They're very transparent. And overwhelmingly, big businesses don't fail in our country. It's very, very rare. And someone will say right away, what about General Motors and Chrysler? They were extraordinarily statistically unusually unique. They were outliers, uh, unbelievable outliers. Big businesses almost never fail. It's overwhelmingly small and medium-sized businesses. Lavalin, aside from the, uh, the, the skullduggery they did in Bangladesh and, Bangladesh and in Libya, uh, they're a very strong engineering company. They have really smart people, really skilled people, lots of core competencies in that company to build these mega infrastructure projects. Those skill sets are not vanishing and going away. At worst, what would happen is the company could get bought out. But the idea that it's going to somehow vanish from the planet or vanish from Quebec and Canada, I think, is just scaremongering to try to justify uh, putting in a remediation agreement. That's part of Lavalin's strategy. But the idea that they're going to fail, I think, is nonsense. They're in a very oligopolistic industry, which is the big fancy academic word for a concentrated industry with only a few major players. There's only about five or six of these mega engineering construction companies that can do turnkey projects, go out and build an airport from scratch, Mm. build a dam from scratch. And they're one of them. And the idea that nobody wants them is nonsense. Yeah. You know, they may rebrand themselves, change their name down the road, who knows. But the idea that those, those skill sets and those people and those assets are going to vanish is nonsense. Yeah, and same with the 9,000 employees. I mean, they're, you know, yeah, I agree. Uh, how, does this, how does this affect China's view of the Huawei case, especially when well, the topic is rule of law? I am very glad you brought that up because one thing that this is sort of there's so many unintended consequences falling out of this whole uh, affair or scandal or whatever you want to call it but i think it's very clear that and i'm not saying this to sympathize with the chinese or you know one way or the other i'm just simply stating what it means is the chinese must be sitting there saying i told you so this is exactly the way it really is Mm -hmm. we're seeing the real situation and and not just China. I mean, there's other countries, too, around the world who are looking at this and coming to a very similar conclusion, that it validates what the Chinese said 
notwithstanding, without getting into the debate about Huawei and whether they're a threat to national security or not, and whether or not they were violating the Iranian sanctions, the American Iranian sanctions, the, the, I think this confirms and validates exactly what the Chinese were saying about the rule of law, that it's, it's applied when governments choose to apply it, and it's not applied when, uh, when some of these Western governments choose not to apply it. And that's unfortunate, but that's the only conclusion that I think people can draw from this, and that's what the Chinese are. I remember saying when we were talking about this issue yesterday, the testimony of, of Jody Wilson-Raybould and waiting for her to speak, I remember saying to myself, surely she's not going to literally scar the Liberal Party heading into an election. And, and and that's it, it appears is what she's done. How how do they regroup from this heading into an election? How do, how damaging is this? Uh, I think that is the existential question facing the Liberal Party right now. Uh, how are they going to address it? Uh, I don't think the way that Mr. Trudeau has been handling it up until now has been, uh, shall we say, stellar. It's not going to win awards in uh, in political science textbooks or, or business uh, schools uh, crisis management textbooks. Uh, and I say that very seriously. I think that there's a wide agreement amongst people on the ground, you know, politicos and retired senior public servants and that sort of thing, that the government has really made a botch of this, has really mis- mishandled the uh, the entire crisis. But that is going to be their central uh, uh, the central issue now facing the liberals is they're going to have to reinvent their entire campaign uh over the next six months going into the next election and i don't quite frankly uh i don't know how they're going to do it i mean we do see the similar we can see the the outlines of it he's going to say jobs 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 we're focused like a laser beam on the economy shades of bill clinton in 1992 uh when he was campaigning against george hw bush where he said, it's the economy stupid, it's the economy stupid, he kept emphasizing that. So I imagine they're going to focus on that. Look, the economy is doing spectacularly well. We are focused like a laser beam on jobs, jobs, jobs. And yes, they may even say to the effect, yes, some mistakes were made, but they were mistakes of, of um, you know, because of the our commitment to the greater good. And, and I, I think they're going to probably go down that road because I can't see any other way. Uh, he uh, he said that, that, as you mentioned, that seemed to be his response yesterday. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it doesn't matter about rule of law. This is about saving a Quebec institution and about saving 9,000 jobs. Exactly. Um, is it now got to the point where, well, we can break the law as long as there's jobs at the end of it? Well, right? I think that's, I mean, the both the NDP and the Conservatives are going to make that uh, uh, the opposite argument. And that's essentially a variation of that famous, 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 you know, debate we've had for since I was a kid. We've all debated at some point in our lives, does the end justify the means? Can you do, can you commit bad to achieve good? <laughs> to put it, I think, in the language of philosophy mm-hmm. professors, and I'm not a philosophy professor, I assure you, but I mean, it really does get, though, get into almost a philosophical question. Is it okay to do bad things to achieve Good, uh, good things or, or better things, uh, in the larger uh, sense, and I think that that's going to uh, generate different answers in English Canada versus French Canada. I think there's no doubt that this is paradoxically solidifying yeah. the Liberal Party hold on Quebec. I think that the shades it's, it's quite fascinating because his father Pierre Elliott Trudeau, his base throughout his four terms in office, was Quebec. That was the anchor that produced the, the base, the, the, the large number of seats. Trudeau used to sweep Quebec, literally get 70, 73 out of 75 seats. 
the father. Mm-hmm. And it looks like now the son is going to, for different reasons and different circumstances, is going to almost repeat that sort of political strategy where Quebec and the Maritimes are the anchor of the Liberal Party, and uh, whereas they're going to be, I think there's no doubt that they're going to lose a lot of seats in Western Canada and then Ontario, down in your neck of the woods is where the election is going to be decided in the uh, in the towns like Hamilton and Toronto and, and so forth, Pickering and, and so forth, that's where the election is going to be determined. And I think that the outcome will be different there than in Quebec. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, we never even got to the NAFTA deal, but we'll get to that next time. Thank okay. you so much. Thanks a lot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.